are super excited to have Guy and Wendy Weisenberger here with us today for the Word Podcast, and we think it's going to be a great episode. Um, let's go ahead and get started and just have you guys kind of introduce yourselves, maybe tell us a little bit about you. Okay, well, I'm Guy Weisenberger, and uh, my life story in a nutshell is I grew up on a farm in Idaho. Uh, my father was a farmer, potatoes, beets, and sugar beets, and, and wheat, and I was one of seven kids, and six boys, and one girl, and then I went on to uh, on a mission to Central America, it was called the uh, Costa Rica San Jose Mission, but it spanned Panama, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, and Honduras, so I spent some time in all those countries, and um, then came home got an education, met Wendy, and uh, got married, and went on to uh, my career. And somehow after my career, I ended up here in Castle Rock, Colorado. <laughs> so you guys really came here to retire, <coughs> is that right? Yes. Okay. Yes, we, uh, we were actually living in Warsaw, Poland, and uh, my career kind of came to an end. I had some health issues, and one of those was I lost my hearing. And uh, so I couldn't really do my job anymore. So we retired a little bit earlier than planned. And uh, we never really had a retirement plan because she wanted something different than I wanted. When I'd say mountains, she'd say, you know, the beach or whatever. So we never really had a plan. And all of a sudden we were faced with, okay, where are we going to live? And uh, we went and spent a little time with our daughter who was in California and spent some time, maybe too much time, with her family. Uh, they were about to kick us out. Uh, no, uh, they just were wondering, aren't you? Why are you getting mail here, mother-in-law? So, <laughs> so, and we were comfortable. So um, we actually uh, came to Denver. She grew up in Utah, I grew up in Idaho, and neither one of us had ever set foot in Colorado. And uh, so... Uh, I was trying to get her to make a decision on a car because we'd sold all our cars when we moved to Europe. And uh, that was difficult, getting her to make a decision. And she finally picked one. So I said, great, I want to find it. And uh, it turns out it was a new model and nobody had it. And so I looked nationwide search and I found two of what she wanted, one in Kansas City and one in Denver. Cooney Lexus. Cooney Lexus. So I I said, Wendy, I'll be back in about three days. I'm going to go pick up your car. And she goes, well, I want to go because, tell them why. Because of Facebook, I had seen that Chris and Deidre Anderson's son, Brayden, was having his homecoming. And we knew them in Florida. Oh, wow. President Anderson was our stake president in Florida. And his son. And his son was our son's best friend. I didn't know he was on round two of me. Yes. So we said, hey, we'll go out together and uh, we'll surprise the we'll Andersons. We'll surprise the Andersons and go to their And pick up, pick up her car and drive it back. So uh, that worked really well, except for that I broke her car the second day that I had it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I closed the trunk on her luggage and uh, it sprung it. And yeah. since it was a brand new model, they had no spare parts. So we had put it in a dealership in Colorado Springs and... Waited 13 days. And became tourists. (laughs) And we we did all the tourist things, went to Pikes Peak, Garden of the God, whatever, and then we started looking at houses just to kill time. No, Chris Anderson said, you ought to look over Chris Anderson kind of, kind of, and just see. Remember? Check this area, check that area. So we started looking around, and it was June, gorgeous weather, and it's easy to fall in love with Colorado in in June. So then we kind of started, and then we found our house and we don't agree on too many things <laughs> and certainly we never agreed in looking for houses you know if she likes yeah. something I didn't like it vice versa <laughs> and we walked in the house and for the most part we both liked the same house yeah. and but we weren't looking for a house our children <laughs> in really California were very house. very angry with us <laughs> they wanted you there they wanted us there they wanted us to buy there and so they started calling it stupid Colorado. <laughs> yeah, the daughter in Florida. And the daughter in Florida would, thought would, we were coming back there after 
Poland because we had lived there and had a house there that was being rented out. She called it stupid Colorado. <laughs> so guess who moved to stupid Colorado? Our daughter in California now lives oh, in stupid Colorado. Okay. In the, other, the other one still calls it stupid Colorado. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So that's pretty much my life up until now. Oh, I love it. Well, you've had a lot, a big range of experiences. I'm sure we'll talk more about some of the yeah, for sure. living abroad and different experiences, yeah. but Idaho to Colorado and then tons of stuff in between. What about you when you went to I was born in Salt Lake City, and um, I, I'd like to say I was born of goodly parents, but not goody-goody parents. Okay? <laughs> My dad was the bishop when I was a teenager, but he was also an athlete, and so he was a cool, he was a cool dude. And um, we grew up with sports in our family, and he only had one son. I was the second daughter, two girls, a boy, and, and then two daughters. And I'm still super close to my siblings. They are just the greatest people. I love them. They are my mentors, even my younger ones, especially with my testimony in the church, because they just are all very strong in the church and very grounded. And so somehow we were raised to really have faith. And I don't know exactly what my parents did. I can't pinpoint it or say exactly what they did, but whatever they did was... Um, so helpful in helping us all gain very strong testimonies. Um, I grew up in Bountiful, Utah, and like I told you, right down the street from Susie Walker. And um, I was a seminary council member when I was in high school, and they only chose one from each high school in the district. And I ended up, you know, going to these meetings with all these older kids because I was a freshman and they were sophomores and juniors and seniors and I just really think that's when I really developed a testimony is going through that seminary program being on that council and just having great leaders and teachers and and just having that gospel in my life and in my family my grandparents were pioneers great-grandparents were pioneers and our my dad's side of the family came from Guernsey Island off of England, but they're French, and so that's why my maiden name is Le Cheminot. Well, where that book is based, the potato peel. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it that's is. Cool. Mm -hmm. That's where that book is based. And my dad years ago went over to Guernsey because he was looking for any Le Cheminots he could find, and he found a man named um, David Le Cheminot. Did he find it? David Le Cheminot wasn't a member of the church, but spoke to him and found out all about our ancestry from there. Oh, super cool. Isn't that cool? Yeah. And my mom's side of the family is um, from Sweden and um, they're Andersons. So they're, are they Swedish? Yeah, they're Swedish. So I just have a lot of cousins in Salt Lake City and relatives there and Hardly any of my family ever moved away from Salt Lake City. So it was a very, very close family on both sides. Yeah. I don't even know. I, I think I had one uncle that moved away, and we just thought he was so strange because he was... So I was kind of... Yeah, I was kind of the black sheep in our family because he... We hit the ground running when we got married. Okay. And it was a surprise because he's from a Idaho farm, and I'm from yeah. the same house, yeah. you know, always. Never moved. Yeah, yeah. And we've moved probably 35 times. Oh, wow. How, how did you guys meet? And, yeah. Yeah. How did we meet? Um, after my mission, I uh, was planning on going to BYU. It was easier to get into back then. And, and so I had two brothers. Older brothers were down there. And so I went down there just to check it out one, uh, one weekend from Idaho. I was working on the farm up in Idaho, and I went down, and I met my... I was in the apartment with one of my brothers, and I said, hey, I'm trying to look up an old mission companion, a friend of mine. Uh, do you know anybody from Bountiful? He says, yes, I do. And he calls down, and three minutes later, Wendy bops into the room, and I ask her if she knows the guy, and she lied and said yes. And <laughs> I did, <laughs> gave I did, me some bad I did know a Dave Stewart. Okay. So, <laughs> there must be two. <laughs> I, I met her a little bit. Or I, I met her briefly there, and then I left. I came back a month later and went to my other brother's uh, 
place, and he said, hey, let's go girl shopping. Let me take you girl shopping. <laughs> so, so we start going apartment to buy apartment of all the girls that he knew, uh-huh. and we happened to stumble on second time in town. Second time I saw Wendy, we stumbled on her apartment. And we get done, and he's, he had one all picked out for me. He says, what do you think? Of, what was your name? Emma Jane? No. Uh, no. Jane Luke. I don't know. Something. Anyway, and I says. She was cute. Oh, she was okay. Well, what about that blonde, curly-haired one? Uh, and he goes, Wendy? Nah, you don't want anything to do with her. Uh, <laughs> and I said, okay, fine. And I left. And then a third time, I went down to visit him. And, uh, Cougar eat. Oh, no, I enrolled in school on the very first day, very, very first day. Uh, so this is a big school, and I've been there twice in, in town, and I met her twice. And the very first day in the Cougar Eat, I had a couple of former mission buddies with me. We got in line at the Cougar Eat, and guess who recognizes me? Pops up and says, hey. And my buddies were pretty impressed. I was there one day, and I already knew a cute girl. <laughs> and so and pretty soon I ditched her, ditched them. And she invited me to go sit sit by her. She ditched her friends. And so I was an innocent, you know, uh, amateur, and she was a trained professional (laughs) in the dating game. And so she just weeded me out of the pack, and and, uh, that's how we met. And uh, He looked like he was 16 years old, and I kept thinking, I can't date a freshman. He's got to go on his mission still. Uh, And as soon as he mentioned his mission, Uh I was like, Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> he's material. <laughs> I had gone out with both of his brothers one time each, but they weren't oh, serious okay. dates. They yeah. were two. like I said, a trained professional. <laughs> <laughs> I got the good one though. That's fun. <laughs> so I want to back up a little bit. So Wendy kind of talked about some like experiences that helped her form her testimony and I am a fellow Idahoan and I just feel like Idaho is just such a great place to grow up and also to raise a family but I constantly think like I didn't grow up on a farm but I feel like pretty much anywhere you live in Idaho you have to learn how to work a little bit and I'm constantly wondering like how do I help my kids learn the value of work in a situation where I don't necessarily need them to work. And I feel like you probably raised your kids similarly, right? Like you could provide things for them. And so I'm interested in hearing some of the formative experiences of your childhood where you started to develop a testimony. And then also maybe some thoughts on the principle of work that you learned in your life and how to transmit that onto another generation. Yeah. Well, you're right. I grew up on a farm, and we did work from the time we were very, very young. I remember being out in the field, hoeing beets uh, when I was, you know, I don't know how old I was, but I wasn't very old, six, yeah. seven, eight, nine. Yeah. It's, it's and uh, so we did very much learn how to work. But uh, I think more than that, uh, as I got older and had more responsibilities on the farm, you learned how to work. That was a given. You worked. But we also learned responsibility, and I think that responsibility is what, an ownership, you know, if something went wrong, if you moved pipe and didn't hook something up properly, you do a lot of damage, and you get in big, big trouble too. Yeah. <laughs> and so later in my career, I think that that was one of the things that really helped me, because I always owned whatever I, you know, was assigned, whatever I did, I felt immediate ownership, maybe to an extreme sometimes. So. I learned that as far as the church is concerned, it's kind of the opposite of her story. My my mother was raised in the church um, to some extent, and uh, I don't think she was, her family was super active, but they were somewhat in the church. My dad was a non-member, and he he was from a pretty rough family, actually. No, don't tell that part. No, don't tell that part. You can tell that in, in the game, um, Truth or Dare. Anyway, let's just say. Here. You I, can tell that you guys know each other's story. His, <laughs> his, exactly his, I will just say his sister ran the bar downtown. Okay. And one of his other sisters, she got in way worse trouble than you can imagine. And um, so he came from a rough family. But uh, when I was very young, they, my mother got active, and she started bringing the missionaries over to, to uh, teach my dad. And it, I don't know how many years process that was, but I know I went through yeah. three or four 
different sets of missionaries over a course of a number of years. And, um, and finally he, uh, he joined and got baptized. And uh, my dad was a tough guy to work for and tough guy to be around sometimes, but when I look back on his life, he changed the course of a lot of people's lives by making that one decision. You know, if I look at his family heritage and where they went and how many ended up in jail and whatever, he changed the course of all seven of those kids. And um, most of them are still active and most of them have kids that are very active. Uh, not all of them, but many all of them. All the boys went on missions. All the boys and went on missions. Went all of them, yeah. Mm-hmm. We were the, you know, nobody in his either line of family had ever been to college. Mm-hmm. And, and even though we worked on the farm and he kind of wanted us around, he always encouraged us to get an education, even mm-hmm. though he got a high school diploma. And that was it. And uh, so I think back about how many lives and people his decision changed and and uh i still remember being very young six must have been i wasn't baptized because my dad baptized me so it was oh, it was earlier than eight years yeah. old okay. but i still remember sitting in a room with some of those missionaries and there's one good story that uh, after that i was in first grade how old are you only so i guess he wasn't six. yeah he must have been a member because our teacher assigned us to draw a picture of what we wanted to be when we grew up. And I'm a terrible artist, <laughs> very limited skills. And I sketched out there like a couple of guys sitting on a chair and teaching a family. And I said, I wanted to be a missionary. Oh, cool. And I don't even know if my first grade teacher, I think she was a member. Um, she saved that for, for oh, wow. many years. And she contacted me. Uh, I don't remember exactly how she contacted me. She contacted me or gave that uh, picture back to my parents. That's so cool. And I got my mission call, yeah. and uh, they gave it to me. How about we that? still have it. Oh, that's we still so have cool. it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. So that that's was pretty, really pretty crazy. So what was the rest of the question? Yeah, sorry. I asked a lot of questions all the way right in the middle. I'm really curious to, if you two have any thoughts on how to... Oh, pass the, the oh, value yeah, of our no, work on to another it's, generation. It's a really great question, great and I struggled, question. I struggled with that uh, myself in raising our kids because I had a professional career, and I didn't have any any way to help them. Work to give work, them, work right? Like together. You can't tell them to go work on my, the farm. My dad's house, there was always work. Yeah. You know, when I, I went off to school, in fact, would go to school for a semester or two semesters, uh-huh. and then we'd move up to Idaho for... A semester or two semesters, and I'd work, earn money to go back and okay. and do the the next uh, semester or two, and I never had to ask, hey, I want to come back. There was always work. There okay. was no question. You could always give them, and I never had that. And when my kids were looking for jobs, yeah, you know, one of them in particular, I I struggled with it. You know, how do I help you? Yeah, and it's difficult. You know, I was an executive in a big company. And there's not many ways I could influence or have help them. So I guess all we did was, and that is just made sure they, they, uh, they uh, got an education and they learned some value of work, maybe not quite as but much we, as we, we did. We have four children and they are all hard workers. I look at them now and they're married to hard workers. And I don't know how or what that was but he he they'd say that he expected them to get good grades and put a lot of pressure on them to get good grades I don't remember that um I didn't actually graduate from college but all my children have graduated from college and all their spouses almost all their spouses and so I just I I think he set such a good example I think that farm life even though it was really hard and he probably didn't like it more than he did like it. Yeah. And working for his father was not yeah. easy. Yeah. I think um, just those stories and the kids going back to the farm and seeing oh, yeah. all the yeah, work there is to do. Yes. And I think they just learned the value of work. And, and we did have them, I don't know if they threw newspapers or did a, yeah. I don't know what jobs they did, but they always had jobs, right? The kids, we just didn't give them money. Yeah. We just made sure they earned their own money so that they felt some responsibility and some entitlement from that. Well, and I should say uh, for anybody who's listening, when I say hard work, I don't necessarily think that that necessarily has to be 
physical manual labor either. And it sounds like for you, like hard work was the effort you put in at school. And, and I think that's what Kenny and I are still trying to figure out. It's like, we, you know, we grew up doing jobs, but like how, what are those types of things where we expect them to work hard at school? And, and that's a form of hard It was work. even harder in, a, in, a, in some ways for us because we lived a good amount of our time in a foreign country. Yeah. So the kids couldn't do traditional, you know, jobs yeah. and I couldn't and, even get a job we right. were on an FM2 form and so I couldn't really go out and, and get a job so I ended up becoming a housewife because um, you know there was no way I could work when we were in another country yeah, yeah. 10 years That's of our so interesting yeah so you guys were overseas maybe you already talked with us I believe we were briefly but you guys were overseas for 10 years we were in several countries uh, we lived in Mexico on two different occasions with two different companies and then uh, we lived in uh, uh, Poland for a few years, and I traveled extensively. My graduate degree was in international business management, and that's pretty much the career I, I took. And I worked for major corporations that started with RCA and then General Electric, then a, then a French company uh, for a while, and then I ended up the last 25 years of my career at Mattel Toys. And uh, I had a variety of different jobs with them uh, and I've been into I always say 104 countries recently but we just did Antarctica yeah. it's not really a country <laughs> it's a continent yeah. but I'm going to count it so I'm going to say 105 we did get off the boat and put our feet on it so we can count that can't we <laughs> well it's not a country <laughs> technically well yeah that's true <laughs> nobody, yeah. nobody owns yeah Antarctica. that's true yeah, so as we were talking about before the podcast, maybe share some thoughts about uh, raising a family and specifically an LDS family abroad. Um, did you? Yeah, I'm, I'm well, sure you there's. just lived the whole gamut of different places with kids. And yeah, what was it like raising your family different places and also moving frequently? I'm interested in that. I, I took Spanish at BYU because I had a missionary I was waiting for and I was going to marry him and, you know, speak Spanish romantically the rest of my life. <laughs> Trained professional. And I, <laughs> I met him when I was 14. Um, my mom let me go out when I was 15, even though you're supposed to wait till you're 16, because she didn't want to pay for me to go see the movie Fiddler on the Roof. So that's why I got she to go on my first date. <laughs> yes. It was $3. I have to interrupt and ask, do you guys speak Spanish romantically all the time now? Romantically, no. I would say no. <laughs> Hard no on that one. So because I was going to marry this guy and speak Spanish, I took it at BYU and I got a D minus. Okay, I still have the paper that has a, one of my quizzes, and it said "Qué pasó?" with a question mark. <laughs> D minus. Okay, I didn't even know what that meant. That's how little I knew. Then when I meet Guy, and he decides he's going to get an international degree, he went to AgSim, which is American Graduate School of International Management in Arizona. Um, they have since changed it to an MIM, a uh, Master's of well, it was MIM, and now it's an MBA. Yeah, okay. Anyway, he decided we were going to live out of the country, and he spoke Spanish, so he so that's when I had to okay. really. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Spanish game. So I started learning Spanish because he was going to go live in. Um, well, I think you started. I think she didn't start learning Spanish until we moved to Mexico. It was hard. It's and hard first, to learn it our when first location was a a very relatively small town in the middle of nowhere, Mexico, and there were no other, you know, American 2.2 uh -huh. fam kids and a dog, uh -huh. uh, what blonde-haired families in the entire place. Wow. Not, yeah. And almost nobody spoke English there. Uh -huh. That's when she learned Spanish. He said, I think you're going to do fine because you like to talk, <laughs> and you're, you like people, so you're going to learn the language because you won't be able to handle not speaking to people. <laughs> so I found a friend um, that spoke English and French, and she was married to a Mexican man. And she's, I sat on her couch for many, many, many hours, and she taught me Spanish. Wow. And I finally learned it well enough to carry on a conversation on a phone one day, and he said, I think... Yeah, the first six months we lived in Mexico, I said, something feels odd in our family situation. Then one day I realized... Mom's not talking on the phone. <laughs> it was quiet when I get home. And moving there was hard. I 
had never moved out of Bountiful, Utah. He had really never moved that many times on the farm. And now we're going to a foreign country. We didn't know anybody there. But um, did you have kids at this point? We had two two little kids. Okay. Mm -hmm. Kindergartner and a first two year old. Our oldest daughter started first grade. They showed up on a Friday, Monday morning. She started first grade in in Mexico in in a second language. Wow. My patriarchal blessing tells me that I'm going to travel. And in my travels, I will learn different languages and customs. So nailed that one. You believe that? You were making sure that prophecy came true. Well, I told my parents I had to go to Hawaii, BYU Hawaii because it said that I had to. <laughs> so so I thought that, that I thought that was the end of it. I went to BYU Check Hawaii at 18 years old, and I thought that was fulfillment of my blessing. Uh-huh. And I look back, I was just thinking of this yesterday. I thought, oh my goodness, we just came from a place where there were so many different languages. And so I just felt blessed that I was able to learn the language because I knew that it was something I was really supposed to do in my lifetime. Yeah. So we lived there. It was, it was not easy. It was, it was rough. And, um, and then we moved back to the United States. And then we moved to Mexico again, to a different place, which was more modern, more, more um, felt more like home, and it was a little more Americanized. But I will throw in one funny story there. This daughter that that got thrown into that first grade uh, in second language, they the only thing they did was put her with a, another little girl that spoke English and Spanish, let her sit by her and let her translate for her. But she came home the first day and smiles all happy and mm-hmm. friendly. And we go, well, that went well. We were sweating it out second yeah. day. And then about four or five days later, she comes home just in a foul mood, just grouchy as can be. And we go, what's the matter? What's the matter? And she goes, don't pick a penny, show me. They speak they Spanish, Spanish to me. <laughs> so it just dawned on her that this was her life. She didn't I don't speak like the language. They speak Spanish to me. <laughs> Took her four days to Yeah, it's really. Yeah. And now she lives in Boca Raton, Florida. And she speaks better she Spanish speaks, than either of us. Oh, now. that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so um, this has been a lot of fun, like hearing some of your stories. We like to ask people about, you know, we, we've been talking about a lot of the fun parts of life, but we like to hear about some of those really rough, challenging stages of life that you've been through, the wilderness, you know, and things that helped you get through your wilderness experiences. So. Wendy, would you like to start out and tell us about uh, a, a specific example, uh, a spe- specific event or a time period in life that was a real challenge and, and what things helped you get through that? Okay. Well, pretty much every time we moved, which was every few years, was here we go again, and I didn't really have a choice. And so I knew that if I got to this new city or this new country or this new place, I could go to church and have 200 new friends Mm -hmm. and I felt safe there and so that always was my fallback was I knew I had the church and so that really helped me a lot when I was in um, Monterey Mexico my mom died suddenly and I had just had Ty who's now 30 years old um, and I had just been home to Utah to have him so he was only six weeks old and I had just returned from having him in Utah and staying six weeks and just returned. And my mom died and suddenly. And was your mom? She wasn't sick? She was 61 or... years old and had a brain aneurysm. Oh, just dropped over. Just dropped it. I got a phone call like at 5 in the morning. Mom's in the hospital. I don't think she's going to make it. And she was a kindergarten teacher. So, mm-hmm. you know, very healthy and very yeah. young and spry. And my dad had never dated anyone else and they'd been married almost 40 years and he had never had any other love in his life so it was hard so i jumped on a plane with a seven-week-old baby and a three-year-old and flew to utah he couldn't go that quickly he had to organize life brought the other two kids and it's like it was yesterday Mm -hmm. you know i remember the details like like no other and I just remember I didn't want to go back to Mexico, even though I sent my two older kids home alone on a plane. 
<laughs> Mindy wow. was 12 and Ty Skyler was nine and mm. they flew alone wow. through customs in Dallas and Mindy reminds us this all the time. <laughs> the stuff you make me do. And I didn't want to leave my family because that's where the love and the comfort and the support was. And so when I got back to Mexico, it was really hard because I was so far from home. I couldn't call my mom anymore. My dad was grieving. And it was a really hard time. Um, Mother's Day came. And in Mexico, people are very family-oriented. And they're very... Um, inclusive of everyone and they all live in the same ward and they all go to church together the, the members and I remember the guy giving a talk said it was Mother's Day and my mother had died in September and it was now May and he said I want you to turn to your mother and give her a big hug and I it, it just sent me and I got up and left the chapel and our very good friend who is um, one of his mission companions he had hired him to work for him down in Mexico. His wife got up and came out in the hall and just really comforted me. And I just felt so much love and support from that and just knew that, you know, I had somebody there to help me. And, and so when I think back on the age, I'm older than that now. So I've outlived my mother. And I think back, wow, she has missed out on a lot of life because I can't imagine the years that I've had since, you know, 61 years old mm -hmm. and all the hard times that we've been through I just um, I can't imagine how mm -hmm. that would have been to leave this earth so quickly so yeah 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 that was hard thanks for sharing that, that it sounds hard. like it was really meaningful to have a friend in that moment just one friend because I think yes. you must have felt so isolated it was probably a time when it was a lot harder to call home even yeah. even to talk to your siblings or really hard for sure yeah it was a hard time the yeah. phone systems weren't i mean yeah we're pretty old <laughs> but the sudden loss as you know is is the hardest part is yeah. no one was expecting it you can't prepare for that you can't yeah. prepare for that yeah. Yeah. um that triggered a story no that same guy that she referenced that was that I uh, was a mission friend, not a companion, but we've life, been lifetime friends mm -hmm. since then. We're very good friends on the mission, and I did bring him into uh, uh, my company and uh, brought him down to Mexico. This is our second trip, second time in Mexico. And he ended up being called to be our bishop there. Mm -hmm. And he's just a, he's a, he's a wonderful guy. And uh, one time we drove our little family to church we were, I think we met in the stake center, and uh, we pull up to the front of the building and we get out our cute little kids in their little dresses and outfits and we walk in. And I drove at the time a company car, which was about as big as this kitchen. It was just a great big, I think it's Grand Victoria. Grand, oh, yeah. you know, Grand, Grand Marquis, same thing. Yeah. Grand Marquis, great big red, red car. We get out and we walked in the church, and little did I know that sitting in the bushes over over there was a, a, uh, a man that had just gotten out of prison somewhere down in the south of Mexico where he was in prison for murdering somebody earlier. And he had got out of prison and he was trying to find his way back north to where he grew up, I guess, or where he knew people. But he was out of money, he was down on his luck, and he uh, had a gun. And he looked at our little family walking into church and he decided in that moment that was everything he hated about the world. He was in a really dark place to see our perfect little happy family walking into church. So he made the decision in the moment he was going to murder me. And uh, the way I know this is because he went into the church looking for me. And he got intercepted by somebody seeing a new face that was in our church and started talking to him. And um, I don't know who that particular was, but somehow they realized he needed to speak to the bishop. So they uh, called the bishop. I think we were in sacrament meeting, and uh, we had just gone to class, and they grabbed my, uh, the bishop, and he took this guy into his office where the guy told him there was some guy that I was going to murder, and, and I'm in a bad place, and I don't have any with it. Anyway, he talked him down from his uh, dark place, and convinced him that wasn't the best thing for him. And he uh, got him, talked him into giving him his gun. So he took the gun from him and 
put it in his, uh, his uh, desk and uh, agreed to say, hey, what if we can take you over to a train station or bus station, I can't remember which, and, uh, and uh, give you, buy you a ticket to wherever it is you're going. And the guy who was very grateful said, I'd very much appreciate it. So the bishop in his infinite wisdom came down and got, guess who? Me, <laughs> who was the, God, you, you, the target of you the You give him some money. <laughs> so, hey, yeah, could you, could you take him to the bus station and, and pay, 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 take him in your big red car and pay for his bus ticket and get him on his way to Chihuahua or wherever he's going? And I said, sure. So I blindly followed the bishop's counsel. Then, then I come back and I didn't really know the story yet. Yeah. Okay. I'd come back and then that's when yeah. David showed me. I said, no, you're kidding. He goes, no, really. And he opened his desk and showed me the gun. He says, here's the gun. That's then he goes, now what do I do with the gun? It's not in the manual what to do with the gun. When you tuck it. Oh, it, we had so some crazy times down wild. there. So we've had a few wild We times had some crazy times. <laughs> yes, living in a country is always interesting. Yeah, always an adventure, right? Mm-hmm. That is an amazing story about, you know, like, sometimes we, we just, we hear so much about people leaving the church and, like, how, you know, the, the, the negative things they'll say about it. But, like, when people get into these places, like, even the best things in our lives, like, people get upset and angry at them and turn against them and that's like a perfect ex- example of that how you can get so mad at just seeing a family going to church like mm-hmm. and that's that's unfortunate well that is yeah. interesting that you say not that. that that's everybody's reason right like they i'm not generalizing that that's why people leave the church and get upset with it but it is an interesting case study. and, and it also tells you the top ta- the power of the bishop yeah. and you know him mm-hmm. being able to talk him through this and off that ledge, and he is an amazing guy. This this guy, he went on to be mission president in uh, Puerto Rico, not too oh, many during years a rough ago. time in Puerto Rico. Yeah, right, the right after the hurricane. <laughs> oh, wow. so, but it it sparked a thought for me where um, I kept my testimony through all the random dysfunctional wards we've been in. Yeah. We've been in some been we've been in some crazy ones. Okay. <laughs> we've we've been in some crazy ones. Uh. And I remember my mom and dad came down to visit us and I was working in the primary, I think doing the music. And my dad was so interested in the primary in the room and so he walks in with his camera, his video camera, and he <laughs> big on his shoulder and he flips on the light because he wanted more light to be able to video these kids singing in Spanish. And the primary president ran over and said, no, 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 hermano, no, hermano. And she turns off the light and, and he said, what's going on? And I said, well, they don't, they don't actually pay the electric bill. And so you're not supposed to use the lights and don't try and go use the bathroom. Cause we don't have, you know, we haven't been paying the plumbing bill. Playing the water either. <laughs> For three hours to go to church without a bathroom when you're pregnant is, is not an easy thing. Wow. So my dad turned to me and he said, I'm so proud of you for going to church. He said, I don't know if I could actually continue going to church under these circumstances. And I'm really proud of you. And I thought, you know, I just do it because it's what you do. It is. But there are so many things that we take for granted, I think. Just living in a, I don't know, a more affluent place and our electricity is on at church and yeah. I don't know, we have so, so many I, resources. Just to follow up on that story, so I, I was running a factory from a tail there, a couple thousand people in the factory, and I had a big staff, and I called my maintenance guy in, and I said, could you go find out, because every time we asked why we don't have power or lights, we were just kind of, there was yeah. no answer, or there was some complication, paperwork, you know, is what we kept being told. He said, could you go find out why my church doesn't have water? And he comes back, and or electricity, and he comes back, and he said, well, you haven't paid the bill for six months or something like that. I said, how much is it? And he told me, I don't remember how much it was, so I gave him the money. Yeah. And he went and paid it, and voila, we had lights. <laughs> and, and then I said, find out how we get water back in our church. Will Toilets. <laughs> and he goes, and he comes back, and he goes, that's complicated. And I said, what's complicated? Well, I found the main line and everything, and somebody had jerry-rigged the water to go around the meter. So, you know. <laughs> the, neighbor was, <laughs> so the neighbor it got, was. The neighbor was. It got cut off, and there's, 
two years worth of back payments and whatever do and and I go whatever it takes just go make it happen will you he, because he, I was giving him we pressure were, we were influential in the community and our church was not that far from where this factory of mine was and so he went out and pulled some strings and got it and again I paid the bill and so he said well you shouldn't have to pay that bill I said I'm happy to pay that bill and I will count it as tithing and I will deduct it directly from my tithing and feel very good about it so but mind you even though there's no water the bathrooms still got used so just picture oh, that situation. That's oh, yeah. <laughs> not nice. <laughs> that's a disaster. It was. But how did it, I don't know, how did that impact you, I guess? Um, you sort of had the mindset, this is just what you do. You just go to church wherever. But I'm sure it was hard sometimes. And don't you think when you kind of do hard things that it grows your faith? Like, do you feel like you have a different testimony now today because of kind of some of those experiences where oh, maybe absolutely. it was really hard to go to church and stay active in the absolutely church. when i see the last few years what has happened with activity in the church with the generation younger than me and their reasons for taking a step back from the church or taking a break from the church i think to myself oh man we've we had so many opportunities to yeah. blame things and not go to church. Yeah. But I just always felt like it's my faith and it's what you do. And if you don't teach your children to go to church during hard times, then how are they ever going to know how important it is to you know, follow and, those? And like she said, even though there are difficult times for that, but it also was a very big comfort zone for us wherever we were. Yeah. You know, so it was a two-way street there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because yeah. we still have friends. Probably everywhere we've lived, we still have friends, and yeah. you know, keep contact with some of them on Facebook. And and just being in Chile, Chile recently, and we went to church in Santiago with our friends that were the senior couple missionary. And after sacrament meeting, I'll bet you, fifteen women came up to me and men and kissed me, Aww. which freaked me out a little bit because of COVID, <laughs> and I was like, are we doing this now? And, um, and welcomed me and said, are you staying for Relief Society? And they didn't know me. They just all came up, and I thought, do we do that? You know, yeah. Do we do that yeah. in our church? And yeah. do we make sure we welcome people? And, and it's just a different feel. You just feel the love. And the church is still true no matter where you are. Um, do I have a minute to tell a story about? Yeah, sure. I was teaching music in primary, and I didn't know Spanish very well. I sort of knew Spanish, and I really learned it through teaching the children the primary songs. I would play the piano, so I would read the words in English, and then I had my Spanish one over here, and I'd compare. Oh, that's mm -hmm. how you say bird, mm -hmm. or that's how you say sky, or that's how you say love of Jesus Christ or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of learned it through the kids because they speak very simply, clearly, mm -hmm. and they keep it real. Mm -hmm. They don't flower their words. Yeah. And so I basically learned it through primary. And then the more as the years went by, I thought, you know, they, they really need help. They, they stand there with a book and no visual aids and just say the words and sing the song. And I thought, you know, I'm... I make posters, I'm creative, I got visual aids coming out, mm -hmm. you know. So I made all these posters in Spanish and spent years making all these amazing <laughs> visuals. Then when it came time to move, I thought, well, I don't want to take them with me. What good are they going to do me? So I left them with the primary. Mm -hmm. <laughs> A couple of years later, we went back to visit and... I walked in the primary, and the lady was holding the book, and she was teaching them the song, reading the book, and you know, saying the words. And I walked in the bishop's office, and there was a pile this thick of visual aids with dust on them. They had never touched. They weren't comfortable teaching the way I thought they should teach. And those, those posters weren't valuable to them yeah. because it wasn't yeah. their way. Yeah. Their way was to say the words and the kids learn the songs. Yeah. And it was such an eye-opener for me. Like, we don't need all that fluff. Yeah. We do so much fluff in our church, and the yeah. church is still true. Yeah. And it, that was a real eye-opener for me. Huh. Yeah. That's really interesting. That actually leads really well to one of our last couple questions that we'll ask. So we 
we called the podcast the Crystal Valley Casserole because, like, I don't know, because we love eating casserole. And also because it's a... It's a quintessential LDS potluck dish, right? (laughs) And it means that you have, like, several ingredients from your pantry that somehow when you put them all together, it makes something delicious. magic. So our question is, what do each of you bring to the word casserole? As in, not food. Sometimes I have to clarify this. I didn't bring anything today. What makes you kind of like special? What's your special flavor that you bring to the ward? I I think if there's anything, it's the experiences we've had that most people don't have an opportunity to have. Um, Not that that comes into play every day, but Mm -hmm. I feel like I have stories to tell from, you know, from uh, uh, all all experiences we've had in life. And uh, so... I bring that. I, I remember when I first came to the ward, and that's right when I went deaf, and um, I didn't have this cochlear implant yet, and uh, I uh, it was frustrating for me to come to our church because what well, still is I still don't I still can't hear during sacrament meeting like today's sacrament meeting I don't hear I can't understand the words that are being spoken, mm-hmm. a few words but not all of them. But at that time, I was just starting to learn to deal with being deaf and I was going through the process of getting uh, this uh, cochlear implant, which has helped a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, I was in uh, Bishop uh, Reamer. Reamer's office and. He, I was telling him some of my, he was, he was talking to me and I could tell he's trying to figure out what he's going to do with me mm-hmm. in the ward because he knows I couldn't hear. I couldn't barely he hear. He had been com- teaching seminary and he was a great seminary well, not teacher. Yet, not yet. I still hadn't. Well, maybe. Yeah. Not, not yet. At that time I hadn't. Okay. So we were still fairly new and I, and I, I sense his, like he said, he can't teach because he can't hear. He can't, you know. So I start walking out of the, his office and I turn around and said, well, by the way, if you're trying to think of something, some job you could give me, you know, nursery might be one. I don't have to hear to do nursery. In fact, better. And, was, <laughs> and, and, and I, I think he was, he was shocked, first of all, nobody volunteers for nursery, <laughs> ever, ever, ever. And I said, you know, I could do nursery. And so it took about three days before I had a call <laughs> to go to nursery. And it was, it was a little bit of a lifesaver for me because I love kids. I always have loved kids. Babies, two years old, three years old. Yeah, when they get to be eight, nine, ten, maybe not as much. But little kids, I've always loved little kids. And uh, so I had something I could do and I could get something, you know, and I could give a little something. I felt like I could give something by helping out in there. And, uh, and then over the years, I've gotten, you know, this uh, device and I can hear better, but... I still can't do a lot of things, but they still let me work in primary, and I really very much appreciate that because the kids I can communicate with, the little ones. He moved from the nursery to the sunbeams to the four-year-olds, the same kids. Well, yeah, and we'll talk about that because I just think that's amazing that, you know, you could, with, with the experience that you've talked about in church, living in different areas of the church, I'm sure you've had plenty of experiences with church leadership as well and for you to say like i could be useful in nursery and really get fulfilling out of that i think is amazing and a good lesson for all of us but our miles has been with you those two years as you moved up and he has actually absolutely had a wonderful time so we appreciate (laughs) he's a sweet kid yeah he is um Depending on how sweet you think he is, you can, you can <laughs> have him any moment. I <laughs> spend more time with him. <laughs> <laughs> we do love our little miles. Anyhow, when you um, I I feel like I'm just a people lover, yeah. and I love people's stories, and I, so I feel like coming into the ward, I'm one of those that finds somebody that's new or that I've never seen before go up and ask them and I always want to know their story I should have been a journalist she's, I just, fearless. <laughs> she's fearless absolutely fearless socially <laughs> so I feel like um, you know I came in and and started a bunco group and you know just just tried to unite people yeah. because I think it's important I'm definitely an extrovert and I don't really relate to people that aren't. I don't understand that. You know, like, why wouldn't they want to go talk to someone and find out their story? But some people have no interest in that. I just realized it uh, 
on this trip, I said to Guy, I said, what is with me? I, I can't just go and enjoy the scenery and the, <laughs> the animals. I have to talk to everybody and find out every single guide's story and find out every single person that waits on us and the maitre d' at the restaurant. i got to find out who he is and what he does. And <laughs> So I just think that's just where I am strong, and I feel like that's what I can give to the the ward and you know yeah. the new ward and that's a great gift yeah that is a great yeah, gift really yeah. even today i was telling the bladders about the sheffields because they don't know them uh, and then i was like well you're gonna love her because she's yeah, got yeah. this and and oh this other family you're gonna love them because they have four kids and and yeah. i was like why am i doing that why am i why am i <laughs> trying to put everybody together yeah, yeah. You're like a people <laughs> i guess yeah. so that's a great gift thank you well and just one more comment about that you mentioned the experience that you bring in i think i really appreciate uh hearing how the gospel is universal how the gospel uh helps people in different nations and different situations and any situation that people live in like the gospel is there for them and helps them and so i really appreciate when i hear stories of you guys living abroad and that's you know not, yeah. not very many words have somebody who, who has that kind of experience. So that's great. It's true. Appreciate that. Okay. Final question is what do you, what's one thing that you love about the gospel of Jesus Christ? The one thing, huh? <laughs> you can be a little bit loose with the one thing if you need to. I love the hope that it gives me that I can be together with my family someday. I love the eternal perspective because I know that we're here for just a short time, even though it does feel like a long time. We've been married 45 forever, forever years. <laughs> and I just, some of my family isn't as close to the church as they have been in the past. And so I just love the fact that I have the hope and that Jesus Christ has, you know, given us the, the atonement so that we can be forgiven and that we can forgive and that we can always have hope that we'll be together someday and see our loved ones and be with our children and our grandchildren someday. And that's the thing I love about it. Thank you. I concur. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's been great sitting down with both of you thank you so much for making time to come do this with us thank you for inviting us we really appreciate Glad. it we appreciate being able to call you friends thank you thank you <laughs>